Hello, welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani. I'm currently sitting on the floor of my bathroom, which is my impromptu recording studio after a very long field day. But I'm not gonna let that stop me from bringing you this awesome conversation that I had with Carol. So Carol is today's storyteller. She's a marine scientist who works in ocean governance and marine policy. She is gonna tell us all about her career, how she ended up interested in the marine world in the first place, which I think is a really cool story, so I hope you enjoy it. Um, we hear all about the different kinds of languages that people speak, like actual, you know, spoken language like French, Spanish, whatever, um, but also body language or like scientific language or business language or legal language and like all of these different kinds of things and how this has sort of played a role in her life and her career which I think is a fascinating aspect of her. Um, so that's what Carol's going to talk about today is a whole of her career in marine science and policy. And also Carol is team HB5, which is Homeward Bound 5, cohort number 5. So we'll talk about that a little bit as well. So now enjoy this conversation with Carol DeRussell. So I'm Carol and um, I'm a marine scientist. And I'm very grateful for this opportunity, opportunity to be on your podcast and to share my story. And I thought about it and I thought I would share my ocean story, how I came to be a marine scientist being from Switzerland, which as you would know is a landlocked country and how I moved a bit away from science to go more into the field of marine policy. And then uh, at the end of the podcast, I'm hoping there's a bit of time for me to share my current job and what I've been working on for the last decade, which is the conservation of biodiversity on the high seas. So these represent 64% of the oceans, and it's basically international waters that do not belong to anyone and um, lack some protection. Um, so yeah, so I wanted to start saying I grew up in a small village about 30 kilometers from Geneva in Switzerland. Um, and as you would know, it's a landlocked country. So we're in the middle of mainland uh, Europe. There, there is no closed ocean. Everything we have are you know, mountains and, and <laughs> lakes. Um, and it's funny because when you're at school, people, you know, they ask you, what, what do you want to be when you grow up? And um, I, I didn't really know. I thought I would end up being a teacher or something like this. And yeah. And so one day uh, we went on a holiday with my parents to Canada. I was uh, 11 at the time and um, it was my first international travel. So that was extremely exciting because I love languages. I love different cultures and just, you know, going abroad was just an amazing experience. But what happened was we were um, in, so in, in Quebec, the, the French part of, of Canada and um, close to Gaspé, uh, which is a little town um, in the east of Quebec. And uh, we went on a whale watching trip. And I cannot tell you what happened there, but I remember being on a Zodiac, seeing from like super far away, um, a dorsal fin and someone screaming, there's a whale. And I just looked and I was like, this is it, <laughs> you know, that tiny little thing. And you, you, it was so far away. I don't know, 400 meters plus 500 meters. Um, but this, this, I got completely hooked. It was like love at first sight. And I could not describe how I was feeling, except that I was really excited and really curious about what, what, 
what was this animal and what was underneath it. And, and we came back on the mainland and I was totally obsessed. I had to know everything about whales. Um, and my poor parents, it was the start of the holidays. <laughs> they were stuck with me, you know, asking all these questions and trying to figure out things about whales. And we ended up going to a place called Tadoussac where um, they have a, 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 a group, a research group on marine mammals and they have an interpretation center there. And uh, we spent a couple of hours just looking around and me, you know, trying to figure out what is all of this. And I got so hooked that I, I, I came back from this holiday and I told the teacher and the whole class that I wanted to be a cetologist. So this is someone who studies uh, cetaceans, so whales, dolphins, and porpoises. And um, I remember everyone just looking at me going like, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> and so I had to explain it to them and people, you know, like confused, you know, you, you, you're Swiss, you know, like there's mountains around it. It doesn't make sense. But I was really determined. And for the next foreseeable future, I was just into my, I guess, my passion. And it kind of became an obsession. I had to have all the books. I needed to know everything. I needed, you know, to, to figure out everything there was to know about this amazing world of you know, what's in the ocean. And um, at the beginning, it was more to know what were marine mammals in general and, you know, whales and stuff like that. But then I got to know a bit more about the marine environment and seeing all, you know, all of the things that we do on land, how it actually affects the marine environment through, you know, pollution, uh, captures of, of animals. Um, yeah, what kind of uh, impact it has not only on the marine environment but also back to us and I think I was really lucky because um, although people at school and around me were confused I guess and slightly amused that a little girl you know was passionate about the marine world as a Swiss person I was really lucky because my my family um, was really supportive for some kind of reason my parents kind of encouraged that you know, passion and really helped me learn more and, 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 and thrive in that kind of environment. And so we figured out there was someone, you know, in the next town, about 30 kilometers away, working uh, for an association, a marine mammal association, a Swiss marine mammal association. <laughs> um, and his name was Max-Olivier Bourcoux. Uh, and I met him and, you know, as an 11 year old and told him all about my passion. And he was also very supportive and kind of really showed me, you know, what was out there, you know, the, the options, what I could do actually to study marine mammals and what I could do actually to, to protect the, the marine environment. Um, so I was really grateful for, you know, very, very, very early on that um, yeah, support and encouragement from people. Um, and it was about the same time but that my mom started to work for an international organization um, headquartered in Switzerland, close to where we live. Uh, and this organization also has the mandate to, you know, work towards nature protection, which was convenient. <laughs> and uh, so I went there about once a week and I met these amazing people. Not only were they, were they international and with, you know, amazing, you know, cultural backgrounds and different languages and everything. But also they, yeah, they were doing something to, you know, to change the world. I really saw it as 
you know, passionate people working together, contributing towards something. And then I thought, okay, um, so, you know, in order to, you know, work on marine mammal science or, or do something in, in that field, I need to understand the marine environment better and, and try to find some kind of studies that will, you know, um, allow me to, um, yeah, get, get that whole holistic approach, let's say. So I wasn't really interested in studying biology as such because I felt it was like a one-way street, you know, you study the animals and that was it. I, I thought I needed to have something a bit broader, you know, in order to understand a bit everything that was happening in the marine environment. And um, yeah, they, I mean, obviously in Switzerland, there are not many options. Um, so I, I did write to a few universities asking them, you know, about, you know, marine sciences. And they just said, well, if you study biology, maybe in the fourth year, you will have like one term of, you know, one hour a week <laughs> talking about marine sciences. And I was like, nah, that's not good enough. And so I desperately wanted to do something that, um, yeah, that, that would focus on, on marine sciences, you know, from scratch and, and dive into it. Um, and so I found a, a place in Germany at the Karl von Osiecki uh, University in Oldenburg, where they offered a course in marine environmental sciences, which meant that I would have that biology aspect, but I would also have, uh, you know, physics and chemistry and climate change and um, economic, uh, economy and, and law and, you know, a, a different kinds of approaches to actually understand that marine world better. And so that was really um, cool. And I, I, I enrolled and, and got in. Um, what I did forgot to mention that I wanted to mention actually is um, before that, I mean, I met a lot of encouraging people, but there was also a lot of um, not people that were against me, but I felt like I was running against a wall. And I guess because I was so young, um, people thought I was cute, <laughs> but didn't take me seriously. Because when I came back from that trip from, from Canada, I started my activism you know, period mm -hmm. where I would write to delphinariums and tell them how, you know, how they should not capture these animals, how they should not make them clowns for the public. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I wrote to my school and I was like, we don't need, only, you know, education for, for health, you know, or, or some other things, we need environmental education. Like young people need to know from the get-go that there is a bin there, this is where you throw, you know, any, <laughs> any leftovers, you don't leave them on the streets, you know, you have to understand that the impacts that you, or, or, or everything that you do has an impact around you, but also further to the ocean. And um, I wrote a lot of letters, you know, <laughs> not just in Switzerland, abroad also, to try to get people's attention. But um, back in the days, um, you know, we didn't have social media. So <laughs> I guess it, I was the lonely little one, <laughs> you know, trying to do something and it just didn't work. And so I thought if, okay, let's kind of stop that. Uh, let's focus on my education because if I get a diploma, then people will take me seriously. And so that's how I ended up in, in Germany. Um, um, Germany for, <laughs> just on a side note, was not my, my first focus. I was actually hoping to go back to Canada and, and study at the University of British Columbia. But um, as everyone experiences in their lives, um, some, some things that you want in life are not always financially, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, uh, doable. And so 
Germany was a, a good option for me, both financially, but also because of the language, because I would be able to you know, improve my German and, and hopefully get access to another new network. Um, yeah, so I, I studied marine environmental sciences. Um, you know, I, I'm not a, I can tell you, I'm not a scientist. I don't think I was destined to do these types of studies. Um, I think what I was really good at always was uh, languages. Um, and, you know, I was always interested in cultures, international relations, that type of stuff. But um, somehow I thought, you know, in order to save the marine environment, I need to do these um, studies in sciences. And that was tough. Uh, the first two years where you have to do, you know, chemistry, physics and maths. Oh, man, that was difficult. And I spent all my time, you know, studying hard, trying really trying to keep up and, and be able to go to the next step. And the next step after these two years where they were, I think, trying to get rid of people <laughs> so that only the ones who really wanted it, you know, continued. Uh, finally, we got uh, more classes related to, you know, marine sciences. So I had uh, marine physics, oceanography. I had uh, marine um, chemistry, marine biology. I also had classes uh, related to environmental law, environmental economics, um, and I loved that. Um, we had to choose majors, so I went for marine physics because I was completely hooked by, you know, ocean currents and how everything is interlinked and how everything works. Um, and, and marine biology, of course, because of the animal, you know, aspect mm -hmm. and how that fits into that, um, you know, oceanographic context. Um, yeah, so, so that's what I did. I kind of didn't enjoy my studies that much. I was trying to get my diploma as soon as possible to be able to have a job and to be someone that people, I guess, recognize and take seriously so that I could make, you know, make an impact. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah, um, so dur during my studies, also something that I really liked um, was habitat modeling. So we were working a lot with uh, mathematical modelings, um, which, um, you know, is also when you use different uh, computer languages. Um, and being someone who loves languages, it was just really exciting <laughs> to get to, to learn these languages and try to do something with it. Uh, so I did that. I also did a lot of uh, internships, um, you know, helping out people with, um, for instance, photo identification of, you know, whales, um, mainly humpback whales. So these are the whales that when they, they, they die, when they dive, sorry, they, they show their tail. They're the ones that kind of guaranteed 99% of the time you will see their, their fluke. And so by taking a picture of their tail, you can actually um, identify each individual. And um, we use that as a method to see, you know, where they're migrating to, um, you know, if, if the individual has had a, a baby and if that is still with a mom or, or went somewhere else. So I thought this was super exciting. Um, I also got to do an internship at NOAA, at the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration in the US and Seattle, uh, in the National Marine Mammal Lab. And um, that was also super exciting, seeing all these you know, people I had read about in papers um, working on marine mammal stuff. But somehow, I, I was a bit stuck. I felt like we were doing all these amazing science, all these amazing research, you know, trying to understand marine mammals, or in that case, you know, humpback whales better. But 
there was something missing. So, so, you know, from my childhood, I really wanted to change the world and make an impact. And I felt like um, taking all this data, publishing it, uh, didn't seem to get anywhere. Um, yeah, so this is when, around the same time, uh, when I was finishing my studies in Germany, I, I got a position at IUCN, the International Union for Conservation of Nature. Um, so they have a headquarters in, in Switzerland, so I went back home. And um, they let me work firstly on a, on a, a, a Western gray whale project. Uh, so it's a critically endangered whale population, um, which um, is around uh, Sakhalin Island in, in Russia. And um, I think at the moment there's about 250 individuals left. Um, but this is also an area where um, they want to do large scale, you know, oil and gas exploration. So, you know, how do you reconcile conservation with, you know, the business side of things? So this to me was fascinating because I ended up, you know, helping out, um, you know, this Western Grey Whale pan advisory panel, which was uh, composed of scientists, but also, you know, more business people, policymakers. And that kind of opened a bit my eyes um, that, you know, as a scientist, you can have access to these people who ultimately will make the decisions, who potentially will change the world, you know. Um, and that was really exciting. Uh, and after this job, they, um, um, you know, hired me again for another project called the Global um, Ocean Biodiversity Initiative, uh, GOBI. And this was a partnership of uh, international um, scientific organizations uh, working together to protect biodiversity, um, mainly fo focusing on what we call the high seas. So when you look at the map of the world and you see the ocean, the high seas are, make up like 64% of the blue that you see on the map. And it's basically these international waters. It's everything that is beyond 200 nautical miles. So about 370 kilometers from the coast. And basically, they're global commons. Um, there's a few, you know, regulations, um, an obligation to protect the marine environment, but that's kind of pretty much it. There's nothing really comprehensive at this stage on how to conserve biodiversity in these waters. And, and then I thought, wow, eye-opener. Nobody at university had ever mentioned the legal division of the ocean had never, you know, told us about, you know, that far, far away that we can't see from the coast that, you know, lacks protection that, you know, people go to, to try to get the last fish. <laughs> um, but there's not, you know, there's not much control. There's not much monitoring. There's, you know, you know, what are we doing really? And then I, I, I realized, okay, this is it. This is where I need to try to make a difference. And um, I had really good mentors and, you know, people guiding me through that stage. Um, I met a, a lady called uh, Christina Jerdy, also working for IUCN as a senior policy advisor. And she was just amazing because she, she still is, <laughs> you know, very humble, but she's been... Um, through the process from the beginning, really trying to get everyone um, to be aware of the situation of the high seas and the lack of protection afforded to these areas and um, really try to get, you know, policymakers, scientists, everyone together to make a difference. 
and yeah, that's why that's how I, I got involved basically, and that's how I kind of moved towards that policy marine policy field, I guess, mm -hmm. where um, you try as a scientist to bring you know your knowledge, your expertise directly to policymakers. So through through that job, I got access to, I mean, I attended different UN meetings, um, so both in New York, but also in other places like Nairobi, um, um, yeah, and Geneva and other places, and got to meet all these, um, yeah, all these people who, who, who take the decisions, who, who make a difference. And they're basically diplomats, uh, lawyers, uh, most of them, you know, working for foreign affairs. Uh, or, you know, for the permanent mission at the UN in, in New York. And it really struck me in that moment even more, I guess, that, um, you know, us as scientists are doing a job um, that doesn't really reach out to policymakers because they do not read scientific papers. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't really understand what we say. You know, the, the scientific language is, is quite a niche also because we, we have all our specialized language that these people might not understand. Um, and I also realized that there's not many scientists who actually know how to communicate the science to these people or have access to these people. Um, but clearly, you know, policymakers need to have scientists somehow close in order to be able to take the right decisions because you do not want, you know, <laughs> decisions to not be made uh, based on science, right? You really need these decisions to be science-based. And so I thought, okay, this is it. Um, we really need to bridge that science policy gap and have more people, you know, join in and, 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 and understand how to bring that science there. And these meetings were both exhilarating, you know, I was really excited um, to be there, to have that opportunity to talk to these people. I was early 20s uh, at that time. So, you know, like how many of these young people actually get to go there? I was really grateful for the opportunity. Um, I, funny story, I was, um, you know, like the project I was working on, um, was financed by the German government. And so one of the, um, German government representative, uh, who was, you know, helping us with the project at the time, the Gobi project at the time, uh, couldn't make it to an important UN meeting. And so he said to me, you know, you will be the Marine expert on the German delegation. And I panicked, <laughs> you know, this is, this is like the highlight of a career, right? <laughs> Finally get a chance to have a voice. Um, this was a great experience, not only seeing how the German um, delegation works, um, but also being, you know, working for the, the, this German delegation, you have access to the European Union delegation, mm -hmm. which to be honest, as a Swiss person, Switzerland is not part of the European Union. I suddenly had an insight in a world that I was not really familiar with. So this was really exciting. I also, you know, wrote the, the opening speech and they, they read it out loud. And I was, it was just that moment where I thought, okay, this is, this is what I've been waiting for. This is exactly what I need to do. Um, yeah, so that was a great experience. And, and I continued towards that, uh, that direction. Uh, but I also realized that although I was doing that, I wasn't really 100% understanding what these policymakers or these lawyers were, were necessarily talking about. Because the, the legal language, and I guess with that also the political language, um, 
is quite different <laughs> from the scientific one. I mean, you know, these big UN meetings, uh, it's very geopolitical. It's mm -hmm. not about really conserving, you know, the marine environment, although it's the goal. You know, people come with different positions based on, you know, other issues that they might have with other states or, you know, with positions they've had for years and they're not prepared to give up for, you know, whatever reason. And that kind of bugged me. Not understanding that particular la language was kind of a barrier. So I decided to go and do a PhD after I finished my job for IUCN. And uh, I had heard of a, a very amazing institute in Australia called uh, the uh, ANCORS, the Australian uh, National uh, Institute uh, for Marine Resources and, and Security. And um, they, so they're based at the University of Wollongong, just south of Sydney. And um, I wrote to this amazing professor, Professor Robin Warner, um, that I had met in one of the uh, UN meeting I was attending to tell, you know, to ask her if she would be willing to be my supervisor and if I could work on something related to the conservation of biodiversity uh, on the high seas, so in these international waters. And uh, thankfully for me, she said yes. And so I spent uh, four years trying to understand international environmental law <laughs> and trying, I guess, to see it from my scientific perspective, you know, how can we actually, um, yeah, um, conserve biodiversity, you know, in, in the current, um, I guess, world that we have, you know, with this fragmented legal framework that we have with different institutions working on different topics, but not really collaborating or cooperating or, or working together towards that, that, that aim. Um, yeah, and my studies focused on South America. Um, so I was, you know, researching an area that um, nobody had researched on before. And uh, yeah, and so I graduated from my PhD and was ready for the next step, you know, both knowing the science language, the legal language, you know, how international, I guess, politics work and <laughs> ready to make a difference. Um, I was hoping also that my PhD status by now would make people aware of the fact that I can be taken seriously. Uh, I'm not that cute little girl, you know, <laughs> passionate about the ocean, but uh, now I, I really have something under my belt and, you know, I can work on these things. And uh, yeah, so that's how I, I, I got to, um, you know, move practically from science to policy and, and really try to make a difference at, at this stage. And um, yeah, and for the last five years now, I've been working for this research institute uh, based in Germany, the uh, Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies, the ISS. Um, working in the ocean governance uh, uh, group under the leadership of Sebastian Onga. And uh, there we look at different topics. Um, my, my topic or what I've been doing these past few years is coordinating an international project called the Strong High Seas Project. And as you will understand from, from the name, I, I keep trying <laughs> to find ways to conserve uh, biodiversity, um, so different marine species and ecosystems on the high seas. Um, and it's actually been an extremely interesting period of time because um, what started many, many years ago as, you know, trying to bring people together to care about these 64% uh, of the oceans that are not completely, you know, um, protected or at least legally covered, um, 
yeah, and, and trying to get people, um, you know, aware of, of this and governments interested, it kind of moved towards the United Nations taking a decision uh, in, well, in 2015 officially to start negotiating um, a treaty, a new agreement uh, for the conservation of biodiversity on the high seas. And so whilst I was doing my PhD, there was not really, like you could not really foresee that such a treaty would be, you know, starting. Um, there were some discussions, but it looked like they were going towards a dead end. It didn't really seem like something would come out of it. And when I graduated for my PhD in 2015, that's exactly at the same time where states decided, okay, this is it. We're going to do one more, you know, convention to protect the ocean. And um, yeah, and so it, it, it um, came exactly at the right time when I was um, started working again, you know, and uh, so I got to go to the UN um, since then uh, as an expert sitting at the back and trying to help um, delegations who wanted to, <laughs> to have help, you know, um, understand these, these issues better, both from a scientific um, perspective, but also from a legal perspective. And that's been a, a very enriching experience. Um, yeah, I, you, you know, that the United Nations system is, is very interesting. Uh, it's a very slow process. Um, I guess, you know, I'm sitting there, I must admit I'm a bit, um, yeah, anxious for things to move forward a bit quicker because, you know, all the environmental challenges that we are facing, including climate change, um, this is something that's quite rapid, uh, you know, mm -hmm. for our lifetime. This is something that's happening now or that's ha been happening for many years. And, you know, decisions at the political level take a long time. <laughs> And I guess although people are aware of these issues and, you know, when you talk to them on a personal basis, they, they really understand what's going on and they want to do something. Politics make things very slow and sometimes you go backwards. <laughs> um, sometimes the way that certain countries argue is to, to me and I guess to most of us sitting at the back, you know, as experts is, is very, I mean, it kills your mood. <laughs> yeah, um, sure. Yeah, it's, I mean, you know, the science is very clear. Uh, when you've done all these studies in science, you know exactly how interconnected everything is, how when you take away one species, it will affect the whole ecosystem. You know, how we on land will have an impact on the marine environment and, and vice versa, you know, how climate change actually, you know, in order to mitigate it really depends on the oceans and, and the health of the oceans to really you know, ensure that, that we can tackle it or fight it back. Um, yeah, so when, when countries argue for a comma or a dot, very difficult moment. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's, 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 really, it's really a great experience. I'm currently working on my project with South America and Africa, particularly. Um, and to me, it's, it's also, I mean, of course, the, 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 the marine aspects and, you know, um, getting to know everyone's perspective, uh, everyone's background is, is, is very different. So, you know, how they approach the topic is very interesting. Uh, of course, the language aspect, I, I absolutely love working with different languages and, you know, international people. So this is really exciting. But also, I guess, these different cultures. Um, you know, every country, I guess every region, every, every village, every community is very 
different has their own identity, their own ways of perceiving things. And I absolutely love that. I, I do travel quite a bit for my work, but also when I get the chance also privately to go discover a new country, I, I, I try to do that. Uh, I think it helps me very much with my work to try to understand you know, where people come from. Some of the, of the positions that countries have come from you know, many, many years ago when something might have, good or bad might have happened and that would have influenced you know, how they perceive you know, the, the issues at hand right now. And so understanding that and understanding where people come from is, is um, to me very important. And I think this is also something that kind of, I guess, lacks a bit in, in our world. Um, you know, um, not just the importance of this moving, you know, science to policy, to policymakers, but also understanding that uh, multiculturalism and, and how this affects, you know, international decisions. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so basically, I guess that's, that's what I wanted to share. Um, really, for me, it, it would be amazing um, to have more scientists interested in, in sharing their, their science uh, beyond the science community and, mm -hmm. uh, you, know, you know, really working directly with policymakers to, to try to make a change. Um, so this is what I'm trying to promote also through Homeward Bound. I'm, I'm really hoping to meet a lot of interested people who, you know, will want to have access to this type of, um, you know, I guess, entry point. <laughs> and and uh, together we can, you know, something that, that hopefully will make a difference. So, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, maybe this is just me specifically. I'm a scientist, but I also don't like talking to people. <laughs> so I think that there's like a split, right? Like some scientists are, are totally cut out for what, like the kind of work you do. And then some are just like, no, it's, you know, it's introvert, extrovert and just stuff like that. All these things come into play. But uh, the people that are equipped, I guess, to do it, um, if they could do it, that would be awesome. Yeah, yeah, I totally understand. I mean, I'm, I'm also an introvert and I must admit that communication is also, also something that I'm not very comfortable with, especially when, you know, it's for the public or, you know, mm -hmm. group of high level people. Um, but I think what, what I guess is very important to know is that, okay, not, not everyone, I guess, needs to do it or wants to do it. But mm -hmm. um, I think as a scientist, we do have a very strong voice and whatever we say, um, you know, can have an impact. Uh, yeah. And I think that's also very, something that's very important to know because you can, you can bring that science to the right people if, if you know who they are, you know, yeah, yeah. And, and really move things forward. Um, and I think as, as scientists, we kind of have that duty to, you know, really make sure that what we're researching, all this interesting stuff really ends in the, in the hands of people who, who will take these decisions. Because um, sometimes it's a bit sad to me to see that there's so much knowledge, so much research, so much done, but that scientists, you know, keep to their communities and talk between themselves, but don't really see that they can actually bring it to the next level, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, no, you're totally right, because a lot of science just like ends up in a journal, which is great, but then nothing else happens, right? And so there's like, there's a disconnect for sure yeah. with science turning and in, like informing policy on a lot of things on a variety of scales. Um, I like what you said about we have a duty to like introduce our, you know, science to other people. Um, 
because I, I think you're right. I think we do, but I think we forget that that's a part of being a scientist, or maybe we weren't taught that or any, you know, something. Um, yeah, and also maybe it's a little bit uh, disheartening because sometimes people are just like, I don't believe in your science. I'm like, that's not science. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's it. Well, I guess it's, it's what I, I tried to say also at the beginning of this, of my story is, um, you know, you can be very passionate and, 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 and try very hard, but most of the time, or sometimes I would say, you know, people don't take you seriously, I guess, for many different reasons. I mean, I could say it's in my case, because I was very young, or maybe because I'm a, I'm a woman. Um, I also, you know, when you go to UN meetings, now it's starting to change. The last couple of years, I've seen more, you know, female scientists uh, at these meetings, but it's, it's a very much, you know, male dominated um, world. Um, so maybe also this is something that, you know, people don't take seriously. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, it's all about that confidence boost. And, mm -hmm. you know, we know stuff, we, you know, we've studied it, we see it every day in the field. And so I guess we're the best equipped to actually tell these people what's really happening. Because mm -hmm. at least to me, the, the scary part uh, when I studied law, you know, for the PhD is you have all these great conventions and agreements and everything. Um, and there are a lot of people who have worked on this, you know, a lot of uh, non-governmental organizations, NGOs, so civil society or scientists have helped, you know, frame these agreements, which is amazing. But without that, um, and, and in some cases also, when you read them, you're like, it doesn't make sense ecologically, you know? It, it's, it's very much, um, I guess, a, a human thing where we try to put everything into neat boxes so we know where they are and how they work and everything. But it doesn't really reflect how, you know, our world, um, natural world functions, how the marine world functions. And so we really need these, voices, you know, to, to, to showcase how complex this is. And it's not by taking, you know, one decision that you will make a difference. Everything's interconnected. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, yeah. I feel like the natural world is definitely not boxes. It's more of like a series of lots of Venn diagrams. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That was what I was picturing when you said that. And also, before I, so I did my master's degree um, in wildlife. And before my defense, my roommate told me, She's like, you're the expert in this room. And I was like, ooh, that's horrifying. And also like gave me like just enough confidence to be like, she's right, because I did do this project and these people are professors, but this project, I'm the expert. Yep. Uh, and so everybody has something that they are the expert in the room about. Um, exactly. We're not aware of it until someone tells us. Exactly. I think for us, I mean, having talked to a, a few women on the Homewood Bound program, I realized we all, I guess the same, you know, not being very sure that we're, you know, good at this or that we can, you know, contribute to, to something. We kind of know that we have that expertise and we could actually do it, but it's kind of, I think maybe something that women do, you know, try, try to put themselves a bit down. Um, but yeah, I think in that case, and that's what I'm particularly excited about for, for, for this Homeward Bound initiative is, Giving us, really, giving us really as women, you know, the, the, the kind of realization or the power that we can actually do something. And, mm -hmm. you know, that, that motto they have, stronger together, I think this is exactly it. I think nobody by themselves can, you know, change the world. I right. think it really takes all of us with our different background, different cultures, different understandings mm -hmm. to actually move things forward. So 
this to me is really exciting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I always, I've said this a bunch of times, like science doesn't happen in a vacuum and change doesn't happen in a vacuum. Like you need no. multiple people and you need the network and you need, you know, all of these things to get something done. It's certainly not just like one person sitting somewhere exactly. doing it, you know? Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. And it's also exciting that, you know, you're, you're working on, on wetlands, I'm working in a marine world, mm -hmm. but still we connected through that initiative and, mm -hmm. You know, I think there's a lot of parallels that we can, you know, build between the, the two worlds, you know, and, and yeah, and see how together we can move forward. I think it's, it's really exciting um, to be part of this initiative and, and really try to make things move. And yeah, I'm really, <laughs> I think there's a, there's a lot of potential and I, I really, really hope there's going to be more people joining in. If it's not Homeward Bound, you know, um, something else, you know, really as a scientist, I think we, we kind of have this obligation to really inform these policymakers and, 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 you know, try to contribute to a better world. I think each of us has, you know, something to contribute to and it's, um, yeah, it's really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to ask about something that you mentioned a bunch of times and that's language because, you know, there's spoken languages, English, German, whatever, but there's computer languages, like you mentioned, and then there's, maybe even like some regional differences in language. I mean, there is. Um, and I almost feel like people's culture and the way they communicate is almost a language. I don't know if you could formally call it a language, but in all of these things, and there's, you know, legal language and scientific language and all this. And I think maybe, like, I probably only speak two languages. I speak English and science. Well, I don't speak anything else. But I, I feel like you obviously speak a list of languages and that puts you like in a really unique position because you can speak it, I assume, the legal language and the science language and multiple languages. And just like that's got to be really helpful for the change you're trying to enact, I would think, which is awesome. Yeah, I, I, I really do believe in that. And um, it's funny because before this podcast, I was thinking about, you know, what I could say and how I could phrase it. And. And I realized maybe this is what has been guiding me the whole time. <laughs> you know, this passion for, yeah, different languages. Uh, even you can add body language. I, I think it's absolutely fascinating. You know, not just when you're sitting at the United Nations watching, you know, the countries make the, the decisions, but also people talking together in the corridors or, you know, at my research institute, how people behave. I think it, it, it really really affects the way that we perceive um, other people, how we will take up the information or not. Um, to me, it's absolutely fascinating. I've, I've also, you know, did, I've done a bit of sign, uh, sign language because I, I just like to, to learn a bit of everything, just out of curiosity. And I guess I just love challenges. And, <laughs> you know, at some point in my life, this was a, one challenge I wanted to take up. And um, yeah, it tells you a lot about I guess who people are and, and um, now, for instance, working with um, South America and Africa, I mean, I've, I've had the opportunity to go there many times, especially to South America, I've pretty much done close to every country there. And um, it's fascinating because they speak, except for Brazil, right? The rest of the continent speaks Spanish. Hey, it's Rachel. I just wanted to point out real quick that there are five primary languages spoken in South America. It's Spanish and Portuguese, um, also English, French, and Dutch. 
um, as well as over 60 indigenous languages spoken across the continent. Um, Carol and I, after we recorded this, realized that we, we messed up the languages, so I just wanted to clarify that there is Portuguese and Spanish spoken primarily, plus English, French, Dutch, and a bunch of indigenous languages. I always thought, so right, you know, it's kind of a uniforming language, and so they must be, you know, plus minus kind of on the same page. But no, it's, it's it, you know, culturally very different. Um, the way people speak, even, you know, regionally, the, the, the tone of voice, um, the, the dialects and everything, it absolutely changes, um, yeah, how people react, how, how people think, I guess. Um, I also find, for instance, I don't know if you're the same, <laughs> when I travel, I love, I love trying local foods and listening mm -hmm. to the music and looking at how people dress. And I feel like this gives you a lot of insights about, you know, culture and how, yeah, how people live and, and, and their ways of thinking. And to me, at least personally, I feel like this has helped me a lot in my job, um, understanding this, or at least learning about this more and more. And also when I go to the UN, you know, for instance, another aspect that I love um, is, uh, so the United Nations has six official languages, right? Um, so it's English, uh, Spanish, French, um, Arabic, Chinese, and Russian. And so everything has to be translated into these languages, um, either simultaneously or the documents afterwards, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so I like to listen to the translations um, to see. So I, I, I need to, a disclaimer, I can't speak the six languages. <laughs> I wish, this is a goal, but it's not the case yet. Um, so I'm fluent in French, Spanish, and English. Um, I've done a bit of Chinese, but not enough to understand what they say. Um, but so I listen mainly to the three languages that I that I know, and it's fascinating because these interpreters are amazing. It's it's a job in itself. It's very difficult, um, especially when you you have to do it simultaneously. You know, using that specialized language. But also, um, sometimes things don't get translated. I was going to say for me the right way, mm -hmm. um, and I realize also this affects certain countries' positions because of course you interpret it in another way. Mm -hmm. And so it's very fascinating that, um, you know, the words that people use, um, you know, what they agree on, which is always the English version, right? That people negotiate. Um, yeah, for us, maybe the word might seem to be the same, but for other cultures, it could mm -hmm. signify something else. And so they sometimes negotiate words, punctuations, because that doesn't fit or reflect, you know, what they, want <laughs> what they understand and and so for me yeah this uh, multicultural background is super important i think i think most of the people should be exposed to that somehow to kind of yeah bring the context more into context <laughs> yeah it seems on the surface like kind of nitpicky or silly to argue about one specific word in something but that one word may have a totally different or not accurate meaning for that particular thing so it makes sense when you actually think about it but yep. yeah it, it does on, on on one hand it does yeah. but then on the other hand um states sometimes most of the times use it to dilute you know the the legal implications <laughs> and so <That's> good. <laughs> yeah so this is also frustrating i guess uh, as someone who loves languages to see you know that you want to achieve you know 
conservation of biodiversity, you really want to achieve a state that can be helpful for everyone. But um, <laughs> the way words are, are phrased or, or framed uh, might mean that you won't achieve that goal, although it's kind of written, it has not the right meaning, you know, and this is super frustrating as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, this is why I could never be a lawyer. Because um, <laughs> all these ways to interpret the way, of, you know, words, the order of words and make a legal decision, I just don't think I can do it. <laughs> or yeah. like the intent versus what it actually says. Oh, my goodness. Exactly. I'm, I'm the same. I must admit, I did law to understand the policy world better and, and be better equipped, you know, to, to be able to help in that environment. But if I'm honest, um, law is not something that's, you know, that I... Yeah. I don't know if enjoy is the right word, but it's, it's very dry. Yeah. Um, I, I think science, although I guess I was not meant to be doing science, I don't think it's what I'm, you know, the best at, mm -hmm. but it's something that came into my path. And this is, I think, natural sciences is what I relate most to. Um, mm -hmm. the, the legal aspects or, or the legal language is what I use for work in order to, mm -hmm. you know, bring that science to the policymakers. So it's more of a mean but i um i'm actually quite glad i didn't study it for my undergrads uh, <laughs> yeah. it's not really my world <laughs> no and the reason i said that is because um with all of the things happening in the u.s lately uh there's a lot of environmental things that are trying to get overturned by the federal government specifically the president and there's all these you know legal groups that are filing all these legal things, I don't know the word for it, you know, to stop it or put a hold to it so it can go through the system or whatever. And they're just like, man, that's a really important thing to do because there needs to be, you know, checks on things and you need to do everything the correct way and we need to stop things that are not, not good. Um, but I'm just like, man, I could never do that. But I'm so glad that people are doing things like that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and also that, that help from, from people who understand the, the science behind it, because I think also for these legal, you know, trials that they're doing also, you know, when they relate to um, environmental stuff, I mean, you really need to understand, I mean, if we really want to make the world a better place, we need to understand how everything's interconnected, you know, mm -hmm. that, uh, yeah, the ecology behind it, like you, you can't just, just, you know, live off, you know, legal terms, it's not going to bring you forward. So, um, yeah, this is to me a huge challenge, but if I can convince, hopefully through that podcast, a few more scientists to join, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and bring that science to policymakers, I think that will, I will it will make me very happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, earlier I said that, like, that I'm not really one to be interested in the policy, and it's not that I'm not interested, but you know, I was thinking about it while you were talking. I was like, the work that I do, all of our data gets turned to the state of Louisiana. And then they use that to make like habitat management decisions. And I'm not certain that it's necessarily policy so much because there's already this like box of coastal restoration work, but they use it to make project decisions or to do all the modeling and stuff. So indirectly, I guess I am sort of helping at least, you know, something, but I'm yeah. not sure I would call it policy per se. Um, because the policy is already there, but what's being done within the policy is what's being changed. Yeah, contribute towards shaping it. I think that's great. Yeah, I think, I think one way or another, I think scientists have have that, you know, option or potential. But it's about knowing 
that there's a world, I guess, out there. You know, I seriously, when I was at university, nobody ever mentioned that. And the, the legal classes I had were just, uh, because I was in Germany, was based on the legal, um, you know, agreements or conventions within Germany to protect, you know, the natural world. It, it wasn't even about the marine environment. So mm -hmm. at no point in time did I have any clue that there was, <laughs> you know, something beyond that. Um, and, and yeah, I, I, I somehow I, I was a bit frustrated. Um, same as what I feel, I don't know if now, nowadays kids have, you know, better environmental education that I had, but at least at my school, nobody was talking about these things. You know, you right. just consumed, you just threw things and not that it was okay, but nobody told you it was not okay. Right. Um, and same at university, nobody, you know, said that there's a world beyond academia. I just knew from the beginning that this was not a world for me that I would not fit in. Uh, but I didn't know there was that other opportunity. And I'm super grateful to, you know, everyone around me, not only who believed <laughs> that as a Swiss, I could be a marine scientist, but also who kind of steered me toward that, that international, you know, direction and, 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 you know, yeah, to that policy um, aspect. I, I, I would never have done that without them. So I'm, really grateful. I, I think I was really lucky <laughs> um, always to, to have these people around me who, who believed in me when I guess I didn't and really gave me this opportunity to move forward and, and do what I do now. So yeah, I think lesson learned for everyone, regardless of, you know, where you come from, you know, who you are. I think when you have dreams and a passion, you can make it work. And I think regardless also of things that might bring you down, you know, like, for me, people, you know, I guess making fun of me when I was a kid or, you know, not believing in me, you know, because I was doing something that people thought was crazy. Mm -hmm. I think, I think we can, we can battle and we can make it through and don't let these bullies push you down. Just, yeah. you know, go for it. <laughs> we we can manage. <laughs> I, I relate to the, um, to the part you said just a second ago about, you know, where someone's trying to like deter you from doing something. Cause that's sort of what my situation was where I wanted to do, I wanted to major in a specific thing. I wanted to major in wildlife and my family all tried to talk me out of it. They're like, well, you'll never make any money. I was like, but that's not my, that's not my goal. Like maybe you're right, but that was never the goal. <laughs> the goal is not to be rich. The goal is to do something I like. Yeah. Um, I did it anyway. So yeah. No, good for you. This is exactly it. This is exactly it. I think, I think, of course, when your family is not encouraging, it's it's very, I guess, difficult because these are the people who are closest to you, and mm -hmm. you know you want them to to you know to encourage you. But I think it's amazing that you pushed through, and regardless of what people were saying, you you know you made it work. And um, I guess, of course, the money, I guess, for some people is something important. Uh, in my case as well. I mean. <laughs> Let's, let's face it, when you work in environmental protection, it's, it's probably not <laughs> the most viable <laughs> career in the world. But um, I think we, we're passionate people. This is what we wanted to do and we're making a difference. And mm -hmm. I think this is awesome and yay for us. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the goal was never to like be rich. The goal was to do something I liked and have enough money to like live a regular life on, you know, and like, but the work's also fulfilling. So there's different ways to like be fulfilled in life. It's not just about money or it yep. shouldn't be about money. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes you do have to make decisions based on money for one thing or other because you got to eat or whatever. But yeah, um, I hope 
well, for me, it was never the main goal. So uh, I think I'm happier for it, honestly, because I don't know what else I would have picked, but it probably wouldn't have been as fun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you want something, you know, when you wake up in the morning and you're like, yay, I'm, I'm doing this. And, you know, it makes me happy and I'm actually contributing to something. This is what you want. I guess, you know, I, I'm not saying everyone, but there must be some people who might have chosen a career or had to. I mean, some people can't really decide, right? They end up in situations where they have to do something to help their families, you know, because you know, whatever, and, you know, based on, I guess, financial aspects. And of course, that's, that's more difficult. But mm -hmm. I guess, I, th I really believe in the fact that if you want something, you know, from the bottom of your heart, and, and, and you do everything for it, it, it will happen. And at least in my case, as a 11 year old who discovered the marine environment, I would not have pictured myself in that position I'm in. First of all, I would never have done a PhD. This is, <laughs> this is completely, I'm not, absolutely not the academic person. So I, I never thought I would do anything like that, but it's just, you know, it's not a straight path. You just end up, you know, following the path, meeting amazing people along the way who guide you and show you different new doors. And then you try, you know, you go a bit further and as long as you have that main objective you know that passion leading you i think i think you're gonna get there so yeah <laughs> that's how i feel it's definitely i have found nobody's career path was linear it was like yeah, exactly. you know maybe went in a circle did some loop-de-loops you know eventually they got somewhere or are you know the next somewhere because it's always a series um, yeah exactly exactly yeah. Which is cool. It might be boring if it was just like one linear step after another. That might be boring. So I don't know. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> at least that's how I see it. I, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm maybe someone like this. I, I love challenges. Sometimes I regret them just because <laughs> it's just not good for stress, <laughs> emotional stability. But I, yeah, you just want that next thing. I mean, at least for me, it's not just about, you know, the professional development, but it's also, I guess, a personal development where you know, everything you do, you learn new skills, you learn new languages, you learn, you know, you grow your network and it brings you to the next step. So I don't know where I'll be in five, 10, 20 years. I mean, we yeah. can have a podcast again. Yeah. <laughs> <Up late. laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to the ride. I think up to now, I'm, I'm really amazed at, you know, where passion can take, you know, mm -hmm. me and yeah. And also just like being open to different ideas and change because, yeah. you know, maybe something, I don't know where I'm going to be in five years, but maybe something is going to come down the road in two years and be like, Ooh, that seems like a good opportunity. I'm going to go do that. And I don't know what it is right now. You know, maybe. Exactly. exactly. I mean, maybe that'll happen. I have no idea, but yeah. I've never really had like a grand plan beyond, you know, like six months. <laughs> like, no, right. Right. And I, I guess you don't need to, but I think if you know where your compass is, you know, what makes you happy, I guess, what fulfills you as a person, then, you know, whatever comes along the way, you can make a decision based on that. And you know that whatever t decision you, you take, um, you know, it, it should not make you unhappy. Yeah, <laughs> you <know? right. laughs> so yeah, you might turn down and, you know, possible an, uh, an opportunity and then have another one come up and that mm -hmm. one is actually the one, you know, so. Right. Yeah. Life is full of surprises. Yeah. <laughs> I think you have to be open to them. <laughs> yes. I think that's one of the things I've taken away from Horror Bound so far, actually, is that, like, not having a five-year plan is not a flaw. That's 
just like part of my personality and like the flexibility I want to be able to take advantage of something or not, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, and that make as you said, that might make you uh, more flexible uh, mm -hmm. because someone who just goes straight and, and doesn't look at what's happening, you know, mm -hmm. around them and, and, and just, you know, don't let new opportunities, yeah. you know, come to them, I guess, then, yeah, I think maybe you're missing out. But having that flexibility, you can just be like, whatever, you know, yeah. I'll do it or I won't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's a great attitude to have, actually. It could be a double-edged sword though, because you could be like, maybe miss something that should have been the right decision because you took this opportunity first, but you know, I mean, whatever, it's life. Uh, no, no. You can't go back and change the decision, but you can make a new decision after that one. <laughs> it didn't work. Yeah, and I mean, opportunities come by, I think, I don't know if every day, but very often. Yeah. So I, th I think you can always later on, you know, catch up on what, mm -hmm. Maybe you missed out if that's really what you wanted to do. I think mm -hmm. every one of us can. I mean, I think I'm really, if I can say it bluntly, I think I'm a living proof for someone who was amazing at languages at school, who has now done science, law, I have a business degree. I think <laughs> if you put your mind to it, <laughs> that's a lesson for anyone out there. I think you can do anything. You, I think you can really be anyone you want. I think it's all about your values and, and your passion and, and what you want to make out of your life. And I think everyone's different, um, but that flexibility definitely brings, I, I guess you're more flexible than I am. I'm very Swiss. I'm <laughs> I, need, I need some kind of certainty and <laughs> some kind of future proof, um, but I'm working on it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I need certainty in some ways. Like I need to know that I have like my bills paid for six months, you know, no matter what happens, something like that. But like, I'm also willing to like, jump on an opportunity if it comes across and I feel like I'm safe enough to take that opportunity maybe you know like yeah. I don't know I always have like plan a and also plan b and c so I have lots of plans but um that doesn't mean I need them or that they can't just be ditched because I want to go to something else exactly yeah, yeah. I guess it's like homeward bound right I don't know how you got to hear about it and how you applied but I guess it's also one of these things where it's kind of the unknown and mm -hmm. you know you just jump into it, see what happens. So I guess it's right. also part of that flexibility and, and opportunity aspect. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, I have some notes, so this is kind of random, but uh, for anyone out there that's geography challenged, Germany is not landlocked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, I know, I think sometimes that we forget how big Germany really is. And like, yeah. you know, when you look at a map, you just see like Germany next to whatever. And you yeah. forget that it goes further north. Um, has, yeah. Actually, so Germany has access to two, well, I guess it's one ocean, right? We, in our world, we like to say, you know, there's a big campaign at the moment saying drop the S. So don't call it the oceans, but say uh -huh. the ocean because it's one flow, right? It's, yeah. it's just one. Um, but so um, Germany is close to the Baltic Sea or has access to the Baltic Sea and the North Sea. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, you can say whatever you want. It's still the ocean, but when you're there, it's probably less exp <laughs> uh, impressive than if you were, I don't know, on the northwest coast of the US and you can actually see, you know, like in the distance. Um, but yeah, that's, um, at least I studied in the, so it's in the northwest of Germany, close to Bremen. Um, and uh, we had to have, um, uh, ship experience on the North Sea and analyzing, you know, the marine life in the North Sea. And 
um, I mean, it, it was very interesting. We were doing um, plankton studies, so you know, mm. the little algae yeah. um, and bacteria, and uh, we had, um, oh, how do you call them, the um, snails also that they have? The, I don't know if it's the right word, but you know, these invertebrates. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was I was into marine mammals, and I must admit, <laughs> it was kind of killing me that we were down, you know, looking at microscopes the whole day. <laughs> Even on the ship, we were the, the waves were quite big. It was the expedition we did to um, up to Helgoland, which is the the um, uh, the furthest island um, in the North Sea belonging to Germany. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's a piece of rock basically. It's not that big. Um, but we went there with the boat and we were collecting plankton samples, so these little mm-hmm. marine algae. And, you know, you collect them, you prepare them, and then you had to look at them on, on the microscope to see where they are, how many, etc. And I could not do that. This was horrible. You know, with five to ten, uh, sorry, five to seven meters high waves, you know, looking down, I was like, no, no, no. I, I admire scientists who can do that, but this is... This is not my, this is not my path. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That sounds like those people have iron stomachs because I would throw up all over those plankton. Wow, <laughs> yeah. Looking at a microscope and, it, you know, everything's moving. Yeah. And I mean, they're tiny. To me, they all looked similar. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't, yeah, I think, I, amazingly, some of my colleagues at, at university were really passionate about this and, and continued working on, you know, in this field. And I, I totally admire them. Um, I needed something you could see with bare eyes, mm-hmm. maybe jumping out of the water, you know, for decoration <laughs> purposes. But I, <laughs> the plankton stuff was never. <laughs> yeah, my thing. I have some friends who have done plankton work or do plankton work, and that's just not my thing. I birds and plants, it's like something tangible, visible, you know, accessible, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm with you yeah, on that I, one. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I just wanted to mention that because I think, you know, geography can be hard. <laughs> I just wanted to point that out. Um, and the other note I have was the um, humpback whale ID. There's a whole, I don't know if this is who you worked with or if they're like found off of this. I think it's called happy whale or something where they, um, you could submit a picture of a humpback whale, the fluke or whatever. And they have like a database of it you know, you, they can like figure out, you know, you tell them where your picture was and they, if they have a whale, they can match it to like this huge database. It's so cool. Um, it's cool to me that a someone figured out that their tails are all different and that we could use that to identify them. So that's cool. And then all the other ways that there's other, you know, marine species that you can do similar things to like whale sharks in their spots, manta rays in their like in the spots underneath. Just like, how do people figure that out? But that's, awesome yeah. you know it's it's so amazing and it's it, it's so practical somehow mm-hmm. um so it's it's like you know your, your finger um fingerprints mm-hmm. um, so actually humpback whales are to me the easiest because when when they dive down and you, you can see the full fluke and mm-hmm. you know it's that pattern of white and uh, black and white you know mm-hmm. dots or, or you know paintings or whatever you call them yeah. and um i mean it's really easy compared to the other whales because the other ones you have to look at the dorsal fin and usually you look at the shape, but also if they've been, um, you know, some of them get caught in like um, fishing nets or um, they get, you know, the, the boats, the, what do you call it, the engine, you know, might mm-hmm. cut them a bit or they, they've been aggressive towards each other or yeah. something like that. So they have these kind of marks, but they, 
they're harder to see. The humpback whales, it's really through the colors, it's super easy to, to figure yeah. out. And when I was in Australia, I did an internship. Um, a PhD student was looking at uh, the whale population going from like, um, like northern Queensland, like the northern part of Australia, down to Antarctica. And um, also looking at a catalog from a colleague of his um, working in New Caledonia, which is an island about three hour you know, flight from, from Australia in the Northeast. And um, so I was helping him matching the, the, the flukes. And I mean, let's face it, it's, it's very difficult because you, you stare, stare at your screen the whole day and mm -hmm. at some point they all look alike. <laughs> right. It's very difficult. <laughs> but, but so out of these huge catalogs that you have, suddenly you have a match and it's like that celebratory moment mm -hmm. where you're like, wow, that whale kind of went another way mm -hmm. at some point, you know? Humpback whales vocalize, uh, of course, differently. And um, there was someone who did research showing that um, one whale had left one pod to go with another pod. And so that new pod started learning his or her language and, yeah. and took it up. And I mean, this to me, it's, it's so fascinating. I mean, as a scientist, when you, when you hear about this, you just, you know, like, wow. <laughs> Mother Nature is just amazing and yeah. yeah, we have so much to learn still. Nature is so cool. <laughs> That's it the least eloquent way I can think to say that. It, it, it is. so cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, all this makes me think of this book that um, Anna Madliner suggested in her episode. It's called The Swarm and it's all yes. about um, like ocean worms or something and all like these things and but part of what happens is, is like all these whales and, you know, and it just like, and British Columbia, when you said that earlier, also made me think of that because a part of it takes place there. So it's yeah. just like all these whales doing all these wild things and all these worms and all this stuff. And it's just like, man, this is like a whole, and it's like a sci-fi book, but it's like all these things I would never even think of, but kind of seem plausible. Yeah. It Actually, cool. I, can, I can market that book, <laughs> do some marketing for it. So it was... Uh, it's a book by Frank uh, Schetzing, Franz, mm -hmm. sorry, Franz Schetzing, he's, he's German, and um, it was published in 2004, which is the same year I started university, and I must admit, I might have kind of put homework on the side to really <laughs> binge read that book. Um, he did, a, I think, and I also mentioned it in, in her podcast, he did a lot of research interviewing, you know, German scientists and, and some other international scientists that are you know, very well known in the marine world in order to write that science fiction book. Yeah. But that book is scary. I mean, you read it and, and yeah. it's really plausible, that thing with right. methane hydrates, you know, mm -hmm. starting to come up and disrupting, you know, yeah. I guess the world, you can say that like mm -hmm. that. Fascinating. Um, the ending I was a bit doubtful yeah. about, but yeah. I, I let you read it. But also he published... No, I read it. <laughs> you, you did? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah the ending yeah. is just... I was... Yeah. I mean, the book had to end, I guess, you know, at some point. I guess I was expecting something like spectacular. I was, I must admit, I felt it was the easy way out. <laughs> I was a bit disappointed. But then he published, I think, pretty much at the same time or a year later, also a huge book based on uh, the swarm. It's basically all of his research and the interviews with, with scientists. And each of the chapter describes you know, the marine environment from a different, I guess, angle. And one chapter I still have in my mind very clearly is the one describing ocean circulation, you know, how mm -hmm. currents, you know, there's 
like um, surface currents, there's like deeper ones and mm -hmm. you know, the warm, cold, and, and, and it's like a conveyor belt. It basically, you know, I guess you can say nourishes the whole of the ocean mm -hmm. uh, by bringing that cold uh, oxygen rich water from, from, from the deep and up to the surface. Uh, and yeah, he, he, he said it's like being in a capsule. He, the beginning of the chapter puts you in a capsule and he kind of steers you, you know, like now you're going fast through that area mm -hmm. and then you're going through the right and then down. Kind of like finding Nemo, you know, with the turtles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly that. And oh, this blew my mind. I mean, I, I was so much into oceanography and marine physics that it's, it's just mm -hmm. so easily written. I mean, really recommend it to anyone. I'm not sure that book has been translated into English. Um, mm -hmm. I read it in it German. Has. It has? Okay. Yeah. So highly recommend it yeah. to anyone. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, I only read English and uh, like kindergarten level Spanish. So <laughs> I definitely was in English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, honestly, like books is one of the things that I learned the best from. And I had never heard of that book, whether my library had it, which was cool. Um, and so I read it and it was like one of those, there's a couple of authors right now, or that, you know, have art that write that write science fiction, that's also like plausible science fiction that's like interesting because it's like seems very real but terrifying at the same time and like that book kim stanley robinson and margaret atwood I'm just like oh my goodness <laughs> like, yeah. oh. scary because you read these books as science fiction but actually mm -hmm. it's kind of a lot based on science and on yeah. possibilities and mm -hmm. it, it could be our world soon i guess um and you know, you and I, I guess, and, and all the other ones on <laughs> Homeward Bound and Beyond, we're really working towards making sure that this does not happen. I mean, yeah. I really yeah. hope we can make a difference and, and ensure that this world is a livable place for everyone and mm -hmm. hopefully equitable as well. And, yeah. I would really like to prove Kim Stanley Robinson wrong. <laughs> like, <laughs> I love his work, but I really don't want the year 2140 to look the way he describes it. <laughs> that sounds terrible. Yep, yep. Well, it's driven wrong. Yeah, let's do that. I think with Homeward Bound, we have now a great network of people mm -hmm. and we can really, let's make a change. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, sadly, change, negative environmental change happens really quickly, but the fixes are slow and the policy and law is slow, sadly. Yeah. So it's a yeah. long process, but that should not deter us. You just yep. have to know that and just carry on anyway. Yeah, yeah. No, we really need to. I don't know. I don't know how. I mean, if I can be sincere also, maybe towards the end of this podcast now. Uh, it, um, when I started my, my career, I guess, when I studied at university, and I don't remember, I think it was the second or the third IPCC report that came out, you know, the, mm -hmm. the governmental panel on climate change. Um, and they really, you know, gave the whole picture of what the future could hold. I remember being very shaken and and, you know, profoundly thinking that we need to do something like now, if it's not already too late. Um, funnily enough, if that's the right word to use in that respect is uh, 10 plus years later, people are still saying, you know, we need to do something now, it mm -hmm. might be too late. And I'm thinking, well, I mean, it's already a decade on, so it's already, we're already late. <laughs> it's uh, not yeah. now, it should have happened yesterday. And it, it just blows my mind how these international processes, which some of them started a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. 
they're still stuck in the same decisions and that matter of urgency somehow you know even if you can feel you know you can talk to people in the corridors it's just when people are down negotiating it doesn't reflect that mm -hmm. urgency and that it's so frustrating so frustrating and um yeah i don't know i feel like maybe if you work i guess it was also in your podcast where we you were talking uh, about you know working more locally I guess you see the differences, you see the impacts that you make um, at the international level, everything's so slow. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's great to work together, you know, as one nation and, and, and one world and move forward, but it's sometimes it's really depressing knowing that everything happens now. And even if we were to stop everything now, um, it would continue to deteriorate because mm -hmm. the, the world, I guess, that the planet needs to adjust and that's gonna take I mean, I don't remember the exact numbers, but a couple of decades, right? So yeah. the decisions we make now seriously have an impact for, I guess, the next century. Uh, and, and yeah, translate that into the law, like <laughs> how to right. talk to lawyers and, and diplomats. You, you know, it, it's, it's very difficult to bring that as aspect, I guess, of urgency. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Maybe we need more inclusive schools where people learn these things, regardless of their future career, you know, environmental awareness should start with kids. If not in, in their families at home, it should start in the kindergarten. And, you know, it's, it's, we're all, we're all responsible and we're all, you know, accountable for what we're doing and we all can make a difference. And regardless of where we're from, what we do, you know, who we are and yeah, let's make a difference. Yeah. <laughs> We need to, yeah, we need to. Yeah, I have anything to add because you summed it up perfectly right there. <laughs> yeah. It's just one of those things like if we started 10 years ago, we've had better progress, but it's hard to translate such like long-term, big picture, worldwide things into law right now. Uh, yeah. I don't honestly know how any of it has ended up as law because it just seems so overwhelming to me, but... Yeah. And I guess it's not, it's also, yeah, the translation of that language into another one, I guess, um, you know, the complexity of the natural world to bring it down to these easily understandable laws, I would going to say was, if you ask me, some of the legal language is really uh, <laughs> yeah. another world and <laughs> it's, it's another language. Uh, yeah. But it's also, you know, the, I guess the disappointing thing is, is these geopolitics, you know, the yeah the lobbies everything behind it makes it very difficult to maneuver and also if you tell people that we're all in this together that uh, yeah i mean we all i guess we all want this the current life that we have i don't think we can go back you know i, I think technology is is the way forward we have to use it for for our own good um but but it's very disappointing when when you see you know people wanting to you know do something, I guess, more based on money than anything else. And if you try to tell them that the decisions they make now might work now, but it won't work in the future because something like, you know, the environmental challenges that we have, including climate change, uh, are global. Um, whatever decision you make at, at your little local level, it, it will be affected one way or another. And and so mm -hmm. this has to be taken into context and, and into account. And this to me is very disappointing when, when I guess 
I guess people just don't want to understand. I think I'm sure at the bottom of their heart, I'm sure they can feel it and they know it, but it's just, you know, it's not practice and um, mm -hmm. this is tough, but yeah, I, I feel, I mean, I, I'm, I'm amazed because I'm also surrounded by, the, by a lot of passionate and, you know, amazing people, uh, including a lot of amazing women. And I think we can make a difference. I think, I mean, I sound positive now. Most of my days, I'm, <laughs> I'm probably not, but I, you know, overall, I think we, we together can make a difference. And I think we should use our voice and, and you know, our knowledge to, to move things forward. So I totally agree with you. <laughs> this has been awesome, Carol. Uh, yeah, it's been great. <laughs> yeah. I think we should meet another time to talk about the nitty gritty of, you know, what do you do and how you came to Homeward Bound and everything. But yeah, really enjoy yeah. it, sharing my, my ocean story with you. Hey, y'all, it's Rachel here. I wanted to ask you a favor. I would love it if you go over to Facebook, if you have Facebook, um, to Storytellers of STEM. The website is facebook.com slash Storytellers of STEM or it's at Storytellers of STEM. And go like my page and go tell your friends if you enjoy the podcast um, because if I get the page, or we together actually, get the page to a thousand likes, I will do an AMA and y'all can ask me anything. And that would be fun and enjoyable and entertaining. So help me out and then we'll do an AMA and it'll be fun. Also follow me on Twitter at Flying Cypress so I can share all of the cool storytellers of STEM stuff with you. Thanks. It's Rachel. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Storytellers of STEM. I know I enjoyed recording it and I love to be able to share everybody's stories with the world. So if you have a story in STEM that you would like to share, please, please, please hit me up. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Flying Cypress or over on Facebook at Storytellers of STEM. And I encourage you to reach out to me if you want to tell me a story. Um, I also, even if you don't want to tell me a story, encourage you to gallop on over to Facebook and like my page and I will share tons of cool and interesting things that all the storytellers are doing or have done or things related to things that we've talked about. So there's a ton of information out there that's awesome and that I'll be sharing. So yeah, go like the Facebook page, reach out to me if you want to be on the podcast and have a brilliant day. Thank you for listening.